1: Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Welcome to part two of our conversation. So this is what I love. I mean, I think... On the back of the book, Mm -hmm. in Atlas of the Heart, Brown takes us on a journey through 87 of the emotions and experiences that define what it means to be human. As she maps the necessary skills and an actionable framework for meaningful connection, she gives us the language and tools to access a universe of new choices and second chances, a universe where we can share and steward the stories of our bravest and most heartbreaking moments with one another in a way that builds connection. And what is it you are hoping that people will then be able to do with those second chances?
2: You know, the whole book, I've been thinking about this a lot. So I think of the book as kind of a trilogy. I think of it as in the beginning, it's the case, it's a little bit of my story, and it's the case for the importance of language. The middle section of the book is an exploration of 87 human experiences and emotions. The last section of the book, to me, is maybe where the, I feel like is the greatest contribution, which is I have been working on this damn framework for cultivating connection with ourselves and each other for 22 years. It started as my dissertation research, but I couldn't figure it out. I thought when I wrote The Gifts of Imperfection, I had it figured out, I didn't. I thought I had it with Daring Greatly and Braving the Wilderness, I didn't. And then I thought, actually, I resigned myself to never being able to build a framework. I just, it wasn't gonna happen. Things that I was learning as I started doing this research, one, I was wrong about a couple of things, really wrong. Just like dead-ass wrong, like I I got it wrong. One was, along with probably every other emotion researcher I know, I have said this sentence a thousand times. We should learn how to recognize emotion in ourselves and others. I do not think it is possible to learn how to recognize emotion in other people. I think that's bad business. I don't think it's
1: possible. You just need to mind your own house.
2: Well, you have to mind your own house. But secondly, if I saw, it, no matter what behavior you were engaged in, if right. I saw you raging and throwing the books behind you, if I saw you sobbing, yeah. Yeah. there are 50 emotions that present each of those ways. Correct. And so I'm going to have to make a ton of assumptions. And because more really different- at
1: The bottom line, what you're saying is, we really, just because you're seeing that, we really don't know what's going on. Nothing and how many other layers of things are going on
2: nothing nothing and nothing and what am i going to shove the experience of my employee who's upstairs crying and who's 25 black and a single mom i'm going to shove her experience in front of my lens which is you know mid 50s you know like completely different so the idea of walking in someone else's shoes and trying to understand what they're feeling I believe has no merit. I think the call is much more difficult and much more powerful. And that is to ask the person for their story of what it's like in their shoes and to believe them. I think it's not about guessing what they're feeling. It's that's, about, more
1: powerful, that's more powerful, you now believe, than even trying to walk in their shoes because you no. can't walk in their shoes because your worldview, your purview is completely different. As it's a, completely different. Yeah, as a 50s white woman versus a 25-year-old single mom, Black mother.
0: Yeah, whoever. yeah. Did you know that it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Cardon, Kaja, Amelia George, and Hey Meave. Plus, you can help to support college access and student success when you donate online or roundup in-store to APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander-owned brands at Macy's.com or in-store. without us listen now to black stories black truths from npr wherever you get podcasts
2: so the problem becomes why do why do we think we have to walk in other people's shoes why can't you just that is so
1: powerful Brene? why can't you just hear their story and believe that what they're saying is true
2: well the problem is the believing part And the problem is in not believing her when she tells me her story, because it either challenges what I want to be true about the world, or it challenges my idea that there's just one experience of the world, or it makes me accountable in some way that makes me uncomfortable. hmm so when I started doing this research I came across a concept from Buddhism that I remember reading many years ago that I didn't I didn't it didn't hit me I just I, I saw it and moved on. When I came across it this time I thought this is the piece missing for the framework on meaningful connection. And it's the concept of the near enemy. And I've heard Kristen Neff talk about it. I've heard Jack Cornfield talk about it. And what a near enemy is, it is a an emotion or a virtue that looks and feels and masquerades like the thing that we are looking for or want to be. But it sabotages it. And the reason I needed this concept was because, When you study connection for as long as I have, what you realize is that the far enemy, the far enemy of emotions is not the problem. The problem is not when I call you and I'm suffering and you're, you know, instead of giving me compassion, you're cruel. That's easy. Like I get it. Like I just got punched in the face. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The problem is the near enemy. When I call you and I'm desperate for connection and the near enemy of compassion is pity. And so you pity me and feel sorry for me. And it seems like everything should be okay when that's over, but I feel more alone and more disconnected and there's no meaningful connection between us. So the big finding for me for this book was re-examining the concept of near enemy and that... The far enemy of connection is disconnection, right? That makes sense. Right. But the near enemy of connection is control. Whoa. So if That's... I see, yeah, if I see this 25-year-old woman crying upstairs and I say what's going on and she says, um, my kid's sick again, her dad can't get her, I missed a day of work yesterday. To really be with her, I can't try to control the situation. I can't say, oh, we can handle that. I can't, you know, what I, just to be with her means being in connection with her. God, that's so hard. Those feel like impossible choices. And then we can problem solve. But I'll be honest with you. One of the things I was really trying to figure out is when we look at the macro world, And we look at the last administration, or we look at some of the things going on in the political world, and we look at, you see these politicians working people into this, you know, hysteria, and and you want to say, oh, they're not really, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not capable of connection. So, but they're, but they're, it's not disconnection. I mean, people feel something. Oh, it's control, it's control, control. Emotions are not, we don't get curious. People don't even know they're being controlled. No, no. And it's emotions are not shared and discussed. They're exploited. And vulnerability is not mutual and reciprocal. It's leveraged. And I don't want to make it sound too Machiavellian because I thought about my own life when like, if I had, if one of my kids came home and said, God, I got in trouble today for being, you know, disrespectful because I got caught talking during a lecture. Connection would be like, Tell me what was going on. But I don't go to connection sometimes. Sometimes I go to control, which is, you know what? You get your ass over there and send an email to that teacher and apologize for being disrespectful. And I want to, you know. Anne Lamont says that help is the sunny side of control. We control situations when. We start to move from being other-focused. What was this like for my child in that situation? To being self-focused, but it's sneaky. Your enemies are sneaky Mm -hmm. because they masquerade. You
0: know, of course. And so, yeah. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank. Something should be boring, like banking. Boring is safe and reliable. You don't want your bank to be entertaining. Entertaining is for podcasts with inspiring celebrity guests not banks. PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money, so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is the service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Inc. PNC Bank, National Association, member FDIC. Thomas's presents Tackling Traffic with Tom. Good morrow. Tis your reminder to savour the morning with Thomas's breakfast. And while you may not
2: be able to control what occurs on your commute, like your horse and buggy popping a wheel and axle on the way to the schoolhouse, you can control what you put atop your soft but crunchy bagel and the toastiness of your English muffin. So do take the time to savour the morning with Thomas'. Thomas's! Huzzah! A toast
1: to breakfast. After your research into worry, you conclude mm-hmm. that worry isn't a helpful coping mechanism. We all have been told that, right? But now mm-hmm. you have researched it and know mm-hmm. this. But then avoidance isn't either, isn't a, mm-hmm. a helpful coping mechanism. So, how do we avoid these traps?
2: So, what's so funny about worry was and painful, I felt so called out was the research, the people who, study, who studied research worry said that worriers, those of us who do it often, have three things in common that make it worse. One, we think it's helpful. It is not. It is not. Two, we believe that we actually have no control over it, that it's not a choice. It is absolutely a choice and we can change it. And three, we worry about worrying and we ruminate about worrying, which exacerbates worrying.
1: So how do we stop it? I mean, we 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 we've all been told that you know, and we you you know, it doesn't change one thing. But you but just as you have written and said, we believe that we have no control over it.
2: But would you would you think of worry as something that you could control? Like I would not think of that.
1: I would think that I've been in in, in cases where I was in the midst of worrying and I just really make myself stop the thought and move to what I can or cannot do in this, in this given situation.
2: Yeah. I think what we do, let let me give you this definition from the researchers. Worry is defined as a chain of negative thoughts about bad things that might happen in the future. So I think when you study people who worry and who've overcome worry, what, I, what I've learned is reality checking and perspective taking is, exactly. yeah, is this line of thought helping or hurting? Exactly. Do I have enough data to freak out? And if I do have enough data to freak out, will that be helpful to me to freak out? And so those have become my questions every time. One, do I have enough data to expend this amount of energy? No, I, I just don't have enough data to be spending this resource? And even if I do have enough data, is this going to help me? And the answer is always no. Always no. Yeah.
1: So this is a great contribution and yet another great contribution you, Brene Brown, are making to the world. I just wanna talk about you for a moment. I was so excited and thrilled to hear that when this book was announced, something happened that had never happened before with books. You know, I follow books, I track books, I love books. Mm-hmm. And the fact that this book went to number one on the bestsellers, <laughs> before there was even a physical book because you just got yours today, I just got mine today. But there wasn't even a physical book and it's number one means that hearts are open and yearning for what you have to say. And what does that, What does? how does that speak to you? Mm. How does it speak to the young woman who wrote that article back in 1984, I'm looking for that, trying to look for that picture again. How does that speak to her? I mean, you always were aiming for and had a vision for how you could speak to the world about our feelings. And
2: now you're here. So what does it mean to you? Humbling, scary, grateful, shocking. Are you shocked?
1: Are you really shocked
2: or is there a part of you that always knew? Oh, there was a part of me that always knew I would do this work. And there was a part of me that always knew I would be successful. But I will be totally honest with you. Do you like my flock of seagulls haircut in that picture? I love it. Asymmetrical. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Did she know? Did she know? Some, somewhere in her, she knew, but she was fighting monsters Oh my god, I love this haircut, though. I got to tell you, I love that. Yeah, she was fi- she was fighting monsters, and I think um, she was fighting demons. She was drinking too much, living too hard, trying to find some stuff that, you know, it was funny that superpower that I talked to you about having when I was young. Yes, it started dissipating at at that age. I had kind of lost it at that age, and what I realized the correlation was the more. The drinking and the partying got out of hand. The less connected I was with my superpower of being able to understand myself and other people, mm-hmm. and so I don't know. I would say in the end, I'm because probably just when I was more younger. T- it was almost, it was
1: almost, it was almost psychic. It wasn't psychic, but there was a knowing that there was a flow to things, and so you could see things coming in ways that other people could not see them coming. I'm just.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I had a gold velvet couch that had a pattern on it in the 70s. And I remember laying there one day, I mean, it was the first time I ever thought about patterns. And my mom would talk about patterns because she would make dresses for me and her and one that would match my Barbie. And I remember thinking, this is is a pattern. This thing in this couch is a pattern. And then I would be like, oh, mom and dad have patterns. Families have patterns. And so I got really good at it. Like I, I got... Really good at it. And I could use it in the house, out of the house. I got good at it.
1: Yeah. And then you went through that phase where the drinking and all of that.
2: Yeah. The partying and the, you know, dance halls. And yeah.
1: But now you're here. Now you're here, Mm -hmm. creating a map, not just for the world to, and and the travelers, but allowing us to see ourselves in ways that we heretofore have not been able to clearly define this is what you're doing for us thank Mm. you very much and I know it must be humbling but it's also got to be very exciting you're standing on a stage you're in a Netflix audience you have millions of people around the world you have every company that has people in one's leadership calling you how are you managing
2: handling keeping yourself focused with all of it For about 10 years, we've had one question and we use it to vet everything that comes in, every speaking request, every podcast, everything, which is, does this serve the work and the research? Mm. Does this serve the work and the research? And we're really good at saying no when it doesn't. And I'm really bad at saying yes every time it does, which is more times than, you know, than I, 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 I still overcommit sometimes too much, but I am... I am as ambitious personally as I am professionally. I'm not going to miss a water polo game. I'm not going to miss an event for my kids. Um, you know, I remember with the first time we met, we were, you know, there was a conversation, can you stay an extra day? And I was like, you know, tomorrow's game day and carpool day, I've got to go back. Yeah. And I think everyone around you was like, oh God, did she just say that? And over, <laughs> and you, And you were like, yeah, she just said that. She's got to go back. Like, you can fly back another week. Like, she just said that. And I, and I am, I really try, I try to keep it all together. And sometimes I'm good at it. And sometimes I'm terrible.
1: What's been the best part? The most rewarding, that's the question. What's been the most rewarding and the most
2: frustrating? I know the most frustrating. So I can just go jump right into that. But let me think about the best part. Yeah, you know, the best part, this is a part I freaking cannot believe. You know, 30 people work here and they protect, steward, amplify this work just like it, just like they gave birth to it. They protect it. They, you know, they, they just, the best part is really my team. Like, I can't believe it. Like, I I really can't believe it sometimes. I get to work with both my sisters and this group of people that are like, we're going to make the world a braver place and we're going to tolerate very little BS. And it's incredible that that's, 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 a, that's a miracle. Every day I come here, it's like a little miracle.
1: That is such a, that is such a wonderful feeling to be surrounded by the people. Number one, you trust who also are bringing value to you. Yes it's stimulating. That's why I thought when you all and all the researchers were together, that had to be like a most stimulating, fun thing. I mean, I, I remember those years with my team. And even though there's there's a lot of late nights and hard work, it's, it's so rewarding and,
2: and, and fulfilling. And the, and the challenging part. Social media. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, what, what, what do you do? Like I, um, I still find myself, I don't know, it's so immature, but I, I still find myself like cussing and crying, like, you don't know me, you, know, <laughs> you don't know me, why are you saying that, you jerk, you know? I mean, much worse language as you can imagine, but um, that that's still just, that can be the cesspool of humanity, I think.
1: Absolutely, did you feel tested uh, during
2: the pandemic? Did you and the family feel tested? What tested you the most? The most difficult season of my marriage in 30 years. Whew. Jesus, that was hard. <laughs> I mean, that that was that was hard because <clears throat> I was afraid all the time. I was afraid my kids were gonna get sick. I was afraid my parents were gonna get sick. And Steve's a pediatrician, and I was like, you know. Ellen wants to do this because she was a senior in high school for during the pandemic, I mean, a senior in college in the pandemic. Can she do this? Um, yeah, I think it's okay. What do you mean? It's okay. You can guarantee me. Jesus, <laughs> you know, like, and then I was, you know, then he's then it's like, I got a text that Charlie said he's going to go to this practice and we decided last week he wasn't. And, and she's like, look, I know you want this to be binary, but the calculus is changing every day and we have to weigh social emotional connection. And I'm like, you know, and then he, he was really struggling. So it was, and I had moved into the first time in my life into caregiving for parents. Like my mom went into assisted living a week before the pandemic. Oh my. Yeah. So we had to bust her out. Then bring her home. Home. In your home. Uh Uh-huh. Along with both my sisters and their kids and husband's. We quarantined together. In your home? Wow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Was your faith tested at all? because <laughs> no, I always thought God was on my side <laughs> and against the same people that I was. You no, know. I, I, my faith wasn't tested, but I, I was reminded, this is from the AA Big Book, The biggest, the most incredible thing, no one talks about this with the AA Big Book, but in the AA Big Book, they talk about the gift of neutrality where you're not running towards something, nor are you running away from it. So I'm not running toward the bread basket, nor am I running away from the bread basket. I just have neutrality. But the condition for neutrality is you have to be in fit spiritual condition. Wow. And I I believe that. I I mean- that has been my truth and what I did realize in COVID is I was not in fit spiritual condition so then did you work on yourself to get in fit spiritual condition yes as my as yourself or in your life that you needed to change early on I had a therapist tell me wow Brene you know the saying is not let go and let Brene right (laughs) (laughs) isn't that rude That's rude, right? (laughs) I really didn't (laughs) didn't even understand what she meant. I was like, what do you mean? She goes, you know, like the mantra, the prayer is not let go and let Bernay. It's let go (laughs) and let God. And so what I realized is that um I had I, I was getting my God on. Um yeah. And so so I needed to be reminded. Every now and then, Elizabeth Gilbert will send me text. We'll send each other texts that will remind each other about things like that. I'll always be like, hate you, love you, bye. Like, you know, <laughs> so fit spiritual condition. That's what I'm working on right now. Well, I
1: think what Atlas of the Heart does is help each of us come to a greater sense of knowing and ultimately wisdom about ourselves through our being able to articulate the language for our emotions. And I'm wondering, what is the piece of wisdom you would like the leaders of the world to most be able to use in their decision-making?
2: Mm. I think it, it's really about self-awareness. Mm. I think it's really, I think this is it. We cannot be more connected to other people than we are to ourselves. Mm. I did not understand that before I wrote this book. And before, while we desperately seek to build cultures of connection, to build trust in teams, to do the right thing by the people that we serve, if we're not connected to self, if we don't understand our emotional landscape if we don't understand what's driving our thinking and driving our behaviors because let me make no mistake emotion is at the wheel thinking and acting are not riding in the front seat shotgun they are hog tied in the trunk emotion drives we are emotional beings yeah do not try to forge connection with others or build a culture of connection until you are fully connected and know yourself that's the favor you can do to all of us for all of us as parents, as leaders.
1: And you were obviously working on this book with your team during the pandemic. And um, you all did such a beautiful job. I just want to applaud you again on the, on the it's a beautiful book.
2: Do you, do you feel hopeful for where we are and who we are as a nation right now? I do because I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm just a, genetically predispositioned for hope. I think we have a very significant threat to democracy. I think we are spiritually severed from each other and ourselves. And I think if we don't figure out how to hold ourselves and other people accountable in a way that doesn't include shame and vitriol and belittling, but really accountable, you have to be accountable for your actions. You have to be accountable for what you say. You have to be accountable for your policies. I think if we don't better understand accountability, I think it's gonna be a long walk.
1: So Brene, how should we be, because this is the thing I wrestle with, how should, because you and I know and the people we know know, because in our circles, we talk about this threat but when you watch the news, you don't, you don't really hear it. It's not communicated in a language that people can feel or even hear. So how should we be talking about where we are in terms of our threat to our democracy in a way that it can be heard? And is even threat the word we need to use to be heard? Because I just feel like, wow, things are happening every day. Voter rights are being taken away in counties and cities and people are sleeping on it. They're not hearing it. And they're not going to realize it until they go to vote in 2022, 2024. What, What should we be saying and doing? And what is the language we need to communicate so that people can not get woke, but actually wake up? I mean, I fear that we are in real trouble.
2: Yeah, no, I feel it. I feel it.
1: But I'm not sure about the language. I I think about this all the time. I think about if I were doing the show now, what would I even be saying? What is the language I would be using so that all sides, both sides, the fearful sides, the conspiratorial sides, how can you be heard? That's why this book is so important. The Atlas is so important at this moment, helping us to articulate for ourselves those emotions. But how do we do it for our country and our fellow country women and men?
2: The only thing I have, and I don't know if it's generalizable or if it's, it's a solution, but it's what's sustaining me right now is I go back to bell hooks. Okay. And I go back to what we're experiencing. And, and I'm not saying this in a, in a you-hoo-woo-hoo-y way, is abject lovelessness.
1: Agreed. I agree. Abject lovelessness.
2: It's lovelessness. And I think the answer bell hooks would say is love and not rainbow unicorn love. But we, if when we saw people suffering, we made the choice to believe them, or we asked ourselves this question, what do I need to say to myself over and over to make this suffering okay. Okay. When I see this, when the, when I see these refugees, when I see this, when I see this suffering.
1: When I see, last night I'm looking at nine-year-olds being married in Afghanistan to 55, right. Years. yes. Right,
2: yeah. What do I have to say to myself? What
1: do I tell myself, yes.
2: To make this okay. It's the other side of the world. Well, they don't know any better. So it's probably doesn't feel hard or scary for them. What do I have to say? And so I do think love. And I'm talking I'm talking gritty, wild-eyed love, not 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 Valentine's Day love. Yeah. But, but I'm I... talking about gritty real love. Because I do think this is a problem of lovelessness.
1: Of lovelessness.
2: And that's Bell Hooks's work, not mine. But I, I am sinking so deep into it right now that it's like a warm blanket. And it's, and I'll tell you, it is reignited. It's the only thing, Oprah, that has reignited my activism in the last year. Because I wade into all kinds of hard conversations all the time. But when I get weary, I think of two things. Chadwick Bozeman's commencement speech, I'm here for my purpose. Mm-hmm and bell hooks love and lovelessness. And I just say, I'm here for my purpose. And if I see lovelessness, I'm going to speak love to it. And if that's not okay with you, that's okay. But I'm gonna speak love to lovelessness.
1: Well, thank you for providing a map for us to find our way to it. Thank you so much, Brene Brown.
2: Thank you, Oprah, I really appreciate it.
1: Really beautiful. Thanks. Great,
2: as usual. I really appreciate you. Thank you.
1: I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations,
2: the podcast.
1: You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening.
0: Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean...